1: You're listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's happening, chief?
2: Oh, uh, I mean, the best TV program I've watched this week was yesterday's Dodgers game starring Leslie Goldberg, uh, hey. front end front center for the entire telecast of the game. Uh, there was a lot of Leslie on my TV last night, so um, that assumes that anyone is local and watched the Dodgers Padres game. But if you hear Leslie having any strain in her voice, it's probably from booing Manny Machado.
1: That is accurate. And cheering on um, on my boys in blue, record 107 wins. It's a franchise best. It was very cool to, to be in those seats and to see that game. So anyway, I'm paying for it a little bit today. I didn't get back until uh, almost 2 a.m. So anyway, when seats like that come along, especially getting to enjoy them with friends and family, you don't, you don't say no, you make it happen.
2: Heaven knows. And fortunately, it might be actually the closest we've come in a little while to a slightly actually slow tv week normally when we say that it seems like an exaggeration or a or a bald-faced lie this week tiny bit slow but don't worry we still have a good show ahead for you with lots of alan seppenwall if you like that kind of thing
1: yeah it's a little bit of a reunion here for you guys huh
2: you mean from the podcast he did like a month and a half ago when he joined us yes it will definitely be a reunion for the last time he joined us on tv's top five
1: Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Dan. Well, this is our 187th episode, and we're going to get things going, as we usually do, with headlines. Number one. Leading off the week's top headlines, Hannah Gatsby is returning to Netflix with a new stand-up comedy special, as well as hosting another special that is going to be focused on gender-diverse comedians. Gatsby, whose last two specials, Nanette and Douglas, helped launch her to stardom thanks to exposure on the platform, previously told Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos to quote-unquote fuck off as she criticized Netflix for defending Dave Chappelle following his transphobic remarks in his latest special. So Gatsby said in a statement on Twitter that the genderqueer special made her decision to do a third solo special with Netflix, quote, a little easier.
2: Guess what? She's allowed to feel as if Netflix is doing things wrong and also to feel as if Netflix has given her a platform that has been very helpful to both her career and to the messages she wants to spend. There is nothing contradictory about that. I say, Hannah Gatsby, you go out and get whatever money you can get from whoever you can get. And if that is Netflix, by all means. And that does not mean that suddenly Netflix does not have the problems that Netflix has had for a while.
1: Right. But this is Gatsby literally biting the hand that that paid her and then coming back and doing business with them, but also finding a way to say that says, you know what, I'm still pissed off. You guys need to do a better job of highlighting comedians from this demo that Chappelle took aim at. So we're going to make you do that if you want to be in business for another special of mine, which clearly they do really well or Netflix wouldn't care. And so Gatsby's like, fine, I'll host this, but you're gonna have, you're gonna give a platform to these people that that Chappelle just completely and totally obliterated. So
2: yeah, I, I mean, look, it's I, this. That's I am fucking I am, awesome. I, Good yes, for exactly. Her. I am solid. Like I've just, I just saw people on Twitter calling her hypocritical or whatever. My point is, she's not. Uh, <laughs> that is, no, that she, is that, all i have To me, saying. that's
1: smart and savvy. You, you that you want, you want my brand, you want my special, great. But I, I represent something now. I'm going to use my, the power that I have in this industry and the fact that you want to be in business with me to get something that I feel strongly about that's going to showcase a new generation of people who have been underrepresented, not only in, across television, but in stand-up spe- specifically. Absolutely. Good for you, Hannah. And also, her, her third this next special is really funny. I had a, the uh, great chance to see it live when she came through LA recently, and it was great.
2: Excellent. Looking forward to it. Continuing along, AMC has renewed its upcoming adaptation of Anne Rice's interview with the Vampire for a second season. Uh, I will discuss that more in Critics' Corner in, you know, five, six hours, but the series will be premiering on October 2nd as AMC continues to look for new franchises, what with the upcoming ending of Walking Dead, the recent ending of Better Call Saul, and the ending of Killing Eve, which still has fans up and Arms slash confused slash disappointed
1: slash hashtag barrier gaze. So, yeah, this is an important uh, asset for AMC. They of course landed rights to more. I think it was a bunch. I can't remember how many, but uh, a bunch of Anne Rice properties as part of a, a larger deal for IP for the IP. Which bounced around. I think this was developed. It was at Hulu for a little while. Brian Fuller was attached for a heartbeat. You know, this thing has been kicked around a bunch and obviously found a home at AMC, which seems fitting considering their focus on genre with The Walking Dead. And, you know, they've got Shudder in their portfolio as well. That's a big horror destination uh, as well. But, you know, in terms of the larger Anne Rice franchise, or what are we calling this? The Rice verse. I don't, I don't think know. we anyway. i don't think
2: we are i think we should avoid it i think that's one of those things like the t-nets that we should say as little <laughs> as humanly possible
1: Freebie. anyway but yeah Anne rice has another show lives of the mayfair which is already greenlit and casting at amc so that's the second series in in the rice Aroni. so yeah there, there's a uh, lot lots to to like here but uh obviously it's a big swing big ip And it's unproven at this point. So we'll see how this does and if it's able to cut through. Up next, Hulu continues to embrace the true crime genre and has gone straight to series on Under the Bridge, which is not an adaptation of the Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, beloved album, but instead an adaptation of a book about the 1997 murder of a Canadian team from the producers of Little Fires Everywhere and Tell Me Lies. Dan, are you burned out on this true crime stuff yet?
2: I'm very, very burnt out on it and and have been for a while. Uh, but, you know, what what can you do? Apparently, there's a, a huge um, audience for it. I, I'd also add, because I'm sure that we have passionate Red Hot Chili Peppers fans uh, who are listening, that Under the Bridge is, of course, a song. But the album was Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So, you know, just in case anyone is going to email us trying to get clarification on Red Hot That's Chili awesome Peppers song. albums.
1: And an ode to, to my 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 city, my beloved Los Angeles
2: darn tuning
1: it's the first song on my i love la playlist which coincidentally is not actually i love la randy newman but it's the chili peppers instead
2: is, is that another thing that we have to have a, a vote on whether people want it made available uh, to the public a little bit like the google doc with all of our <laughs> podcast
1: whatever's or not sure i don't know if you, if you want it i'll share it with you it's on apple, apple music anyway
2: and wrapping up headlines, you might have heard the horrifying news that Schitt's Creek is about to end its run on Netflix. And you might be like, "Oh no! Am I never, ever, ever going to see Schitt's Creek again? Is it not going to be available for streaming now that it's not on Netflix
1: anymore? Whatever will I do?" Watch H- it on Hulu.
2: Yeah, Hulu announced uh, on Thursday that Schitt's Creek is coming to Hulu. So, yay!
1: Yeah, okay, o- October third. There you go. October
2: third. Now you now you know uh, you can you can stop your panicking. It's okay. Up next. Number two, little uh, fun with nomenclature. Yay, we had Disney Plus, we had Apple TV Plus, we had Paramount Plus, and yes, apparently nobody has any new ideas on what to name their services, even though there's currently a Hulu commercial that's out where people are like, what is the stupid name we can give our Hulu Live Plus whatever streaming service and the guy says we'll call it hulu plus live plus plus tv plus and the guy says that's a horrible name let's do it well great what's the latest plus in our tv arsenal leslie
1: well say farewell to epics and hello to mgm plus <laughs> i'm gonna pause for applause pause. Yeah, definitely or applause sarcasm for applause. whichever whichever you feel Um, yeah, so basically starting January 15th, Epix, which is the premium cable network that is now, since 2017, owned in fact by MGM, is going to rebrand as MGM Plus. This covers the premium cable network as well as its many offshoots and its streaming platforms. So farewell, Epix. Hello, MGM Plus. MGM, of course, acquired the studio in a full ownership deal from previous owners Viacom and Lionsgate in 2017 in a deal that was valued at the time at $1 billion. So, Dan, I don't know about you, but the only real surprise here is that it took this long for the rebranding to happen. So the reasoning is kind of similar to why CBS All Access and even before that, Spike TV were rebranded to embrace the Paramount name. And it's basically, these are storied studios. Paramount is very well known. MGM, very well known. You see the lion at the beginning of the movie or beginning of the TV show? That's MGM, right? So this is the the producers of the James Bond and Rocky franchises, one of my favorite movies, Old Durham, Silence of the Lambs. They did, of course, the the Clarice uh, ill-fated CBS show, among scores of others. So what the hope is, is that the MGM name means something. It represents something. There is some name recognition and some value to that brand, whether it represents quality or it's iconic, or you associate it with James Bond or whatever it is. That's what's going to be the hub of this this network it's what's been the hub of this network because obviously mgm everyone is wants to vertically integrate which is a big reason why lionsgate and viacom dumped epics because they already have their own premium cable networks right viacom of course is paramount global they have showtime is in their portfolio paramount plus lionsgate owns stars stars of course is obviously a premium cable network and has its own streaming counterpart so that's the hope here is that you're going to see Basically, all the MGM titles and the movies eventually airing on all these platforms and and networks, as well as the Plus representing the original programming. So in terms of originals, they announced MGM Plus, forthcoming MGM Plus announced that Julian Fellow's Belgravia will, in fact, return for a second season with a time jump after wrapping its run in 2020 as a limited series. MGM Plus has also picked up a drama called Hotel Cocaine, a snowfall-like series that's set in the late 1970s, early 80s in Miami. It's produced by MGM Television. So again, talking about ownership and vertically aligning, here you go. So those two join a slate of other scripted originals, including Godfather of Harlem, which is its highest rated TV series. And it's amusingly produced by Disney, <laughs> as well as Billy the Kid. And then you've got From, the uh, which I can't remember what that is, but I'm sure you do, Dan. <laughs> and then whatever Rogue Heroes is. And then the news broke this week that that uh, the Ed Burns series Bridge and Tunnel has been canceled after two seasons. So MGM, big films, big IP, plus originals. So MGM plus. And it's for a linear network, which made me laugh too, so. It's not just the the, the streaming service that's being rebranded, but it's MGM Plus on TV. So now you've got the plus invasion of linear networks.
2: This this one at least is completely and totally reasonable. The the degree to which I mock various services for different rebranding, renaming, whatever, there is no question that the Epic's name was really not finding traction. It was not telling anybody what anything was, and to say nothing of the ongoing mysteries, and I've mentioned this before, I pay for absolutely everything in my cable package, and I still can't get Epix, uh, because apparently you have to ask them really, really nicely and say some sort of secret code word. Uh, but anyway, From is... It's an, it's cor- an add-on, no? It, it is, but I, but I have lots of add-ons. I have sports add-ons, I have premium movie add-ons, I got add-ons everywhere, and yet for some reason, epics is not part of any of them, so... Well, prob-
1: there's probably an additional charge if you want it. You want Showtime and HBO, they bundle it, right? It's Showtime, HBO, and Stars. I don't know where Epics fits in, but again, I'm sure that's up to every different cable well, it's the, provider. It's the
2: movie tier, the premium movie tier. Anyway, From is, of course, the show about the family that drives to a mysterious small town that they then can't get out of, and weird things happen at night. Uh, not a bad show. I, I gave it a fairly positive review on, on this here podcast. Uh, not a rave review, but fine. They also, of course, had Pennyworth, the origins of Batman's butler, <laughs> Sorry, can't say that one without laughing at it, but that's of course moved over to Pennyworth.
1: It's Batman's Butler Plus. Wait,
2: it's something like that. Uh, They also, at least in theory, have a a second season of Chapelweight a vague Stephen King adaptation that had no need whatsoever for a second season. I'm sure our former colleague Tim is still wondering where an additional season of Perpetual Grace Limited is going to uh, uh, premiere. I definitely watched almost the full first season of Bridge and Tunnel because I reviewed Bridge and Tunnel, so I completely know that was a show that existed. And lots of people actually really liked Get Shorty. And Godfather Harlem has a fan base. So... There are shows on Epics that people watch, but then there are also a lot of shows that people don't. And in terms of what the cohesive brand is, that's, a, that's for someone else to, to worry about and figure out. But giving it a different name and having the emphasis then put on MGM at least gives it a brand that has many decades of cinema and television brand equity and so i understand why they did this
1: yeah it's the same reason why everyone could guess wh- how what cbs all access was going to be rebranded it's like once they they changed spike tv to paramount network a few years ago and that and they and they remerged merged that you know with viacom and everything else it's like of course they were going to embrace that paramount name it represents something it's the same thing here
2: It did. That's what it what it represented was the studio that gave us the Godfather and therefore the offer. (sighs) Good times. (laughs) (laughs) Number three.
1: Up next, we're joined by friend of the five and Rolling Stone chief TV critic Alan Seppenwald to discuss Rolling Stone's newly published list of the 100 greatest TV shows ever. Alan, thanks so much for joining us.
0: We, wait, we published a list of the 100 best shows? That seems like a really stupid
2: idea. Who would do that? Pure uh, hubris, Alan. Did. Pure hubris. <laughs> but on the other hand, all the responses that I've seen on the interwebs are uh, 100% positive. I, in fact, have seen several people, all of whom are saying that it's 1 to 100, exactly the correct list. So good yes. talk.
0: The response has been very measured and reasonable, and I haven't gotten emails that have just been all profanity, uh, giving me the, like, tiniest, tiniest glimpse of what it is like to be a woman on the Internet. Uh, none of that
2: has happened. Oy. Ooh, I hope Oy you bay. can pull up some of those interviews to... Uh, to Not interviews, some of those emails to read to us, because I always enjoy some quality Internet abuse. <laughs> uh, they've
0: been sent to the spam folder. <laughs>
1: Excellent. Uh, well, let, let's start at the top here. How did you guys... Just whittle down all of the great television that has existed throughout time to make this list. How did like did you who did you consult? How did this all work? Yes. All right. So, Rolling Stone
0: did a similar list back in 2016 and a funny uh, coincidence that was the same year that Matt Zoller Seitz and I published TV the Book, which was also doing that. This was before I was at Rolling Stone. Um, and they polled a lot of like uh, great names from TV history. I know Carl Reiner was one of the voters, for instance. Um, just lots of people. And they tallied them up. They said, give us your top 50. We're then gonna weight each vote. So, you know your first place vote is worth this and on and on down to 50. And they tabulated it And they decided, right TV has changed so much In the last six years We should try it again We reached out to Some of the same people But mostly a different group We were trying to get A bit younger A bit more diverse Include more women More uh, people of color Both in terms of creators uh, And in terms of actors And in terms of critics And so we reached out To a whole bunch of people In the television business And a whole bunch of our pals In the media Including TV's top five co-host Dan Feinberg Leslie, we would have invited you But I believe you're not a critic? Is that right?
1: Yep. Drink. Okay.
0: So, yeah. So, we, we reached out to all of them. We got about 50 people in total. They sent, you know, in their lists. Some people only sent in about 25. Some people sent in. Uh, one person asked desperately if they could send us 100 because they didn't want to cut it down to 50. And this was a creator of TV shows who just, I guess, loves the medium so much. Raphael Bob Waxberg of BoJack Horseman sent us basically an impossible to decipher ballot. Uh, I'm, I'm interviewing him later today. So that's probably gonna be on RollingStone.com by the time you read this, but, uh, let's see among other things at number eight, he put, I was going to put the Sopranos here, but I feel like they don't need my help. So let's say better off Ted. <laughs> uh, and another one, he said like the SNL, but only when you were in high school. Um, another one is community and parks and recreation and the office and 30 rock all on the same night. So I don't know, like, how we tabulated
2: his ballot in particular, but most of them were a little bit easier to follow. I do think it is important, though, to emphasize for absolutely everybody and all in sundry, this is not a list that is all Alan Seppenwald's feelings and and it's not, so don't blame him for the entire list, though every single one of the blurbs in the list was written by Alan Sepinwall, and therefore he can be thoroughly blamed for that. That was a lot of blurbs you wrote, man. (laughs) That was a lot of blurbs, and we did a 100
0: best sitcoms list a couple of years ago, and so there was a lot of overlap with that, and as I said, I wrote this book back in 2016 called TV, the book's still on sale, where I wrote about a lot of these shows as well, so it becomes What do I have new to say about, you know, Cheers after all this time? What do I have new to say about Breaking Bad after all this time in capsule form? But I figured it out.
1: Yeah, and those capsules are not easy to write. And I say this as someone who just wrote half of our showrunner list. So hats off to you, my friend. But (laughs) let's talk about all, you know, the rankings now. So what surprised you? For for me, just giving a quick scroll to the list, Friends barely cracked the top 50.
0: Yeah, um, I I know that you are a big lover of friends. I've, I am. The, I guess just the the people we polled were not quite up in the friend space as much as some others.
1: <laughs> That's very scientific, Alan. Thank you. For no, break- I don't know. Thank I'm, you just, for like, it's,
0: I'm, I'm just saying, like, nothing that nothing. Everything on the list is like as a result of people voting. I will say that there was, to some small degree. Some editorial oversight. And so some things moved around here and there, but mostly the things you see are exactly where they were. Like people are shocked. Fleabag is in the top five. Fleabag finished incredibly highly. People really, really liked that show. The Sopranos was the runaway number one, you know, choice. Nothing else was even close to it. So the the way the voters voted is what what you're reading
2: in the magazine and on the website. Did that surprise you that The Sopranos was the runaway number one? I I don't know that necessarily I would have thought that The Wire would have been a sure thing number one, but I guess the idea that it was a runaway for The Sopranos really actually does surprise me.
0: Well, there's a couple things at play. One is, you know, when we invited people, we sent them a link to the 2016 list where The Sopranos was the number one show. And we sent them that list, and then we sent them a list of several dozen shows from the last I think eight years, um, including some stuff that had like uh, premiered before the previous list, but had maybe not blossomed quite yet, like Better Call Saul, um, just to sort of prompt people. And so I would not be surprised if in some cases people are looking at the list and says, oh, The Sopranos was number one before. That makes sense to me. I will leave it there. But I also think the other thing is Sopranos had that 20th anniversary only a few years ago, um, and so it was big in the news then. The movie came out last year, and while the movie was not necessarily beloved, it prompted even more discussion of the show. And during the pandemic, at least anecdotally, that seemed to be one of everybody's top binges. So it just very much seemed to be top of mind, on top of whatever consideration, any bonus points you want to give it as sort of the show that ushered in and is responsible not only for The Wire, but for most of, like, 21st century TV as we know it.
2: Yeah, I was was not surprised by it being number one, surprised by the runaway part, not surprised by Simpsons being number two, a little bit surprised by Breaking Bad being over the wire. Are you a little bit surprised by that? Because I'm a little bit surprised by that. A little bit. I mean, I,
0: I again, I think that there's some degree of recency bias, not only because Breaking Bad is more recent, but just because Better Call Saul just ended, and you just had Aaron Paul and Cranston and Betsy Brandt and some other people appearing there. Uh, so it could be top of mind. I don't know. I I feel like if you look again, if people are judging on influence. I think you can see more Breaking Bad DNA in recent TV than you can see the Wire DNA. The people who try to re- like duplicate the Wire usually do it badly. And for whatever reason, Breaking Bad is at least slightly easier to copy. I, I don't know. But definitely, you know, it's the two bi- essentially swapped positions from the 2016 list with The Simpsons now jumping up over both of them.
2: But just given the number of, and again, it should be noted that the deadline for the ballots to come in was June and so anyone oh, fill- yes. and so anyone filling out ballots would have filled it out before uh, better Call Saul ended, and before the various cameos on Better Call Damn Saul. Damn it, Dan! Like, why do you have to bring facts into this? No, this is this is just me <laughs> thinking out loud because, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, a lot of the a lot of the discussion after Better Call Saul ended, and everyone had to participate to some degree, was the okay? Are we prepared to say that Better Call Saul is better than Breaking Bad? And I, I sure. don't know that I don't know that it was a majority opinion that it was better than Breaking Bad, but I do think it was probably a majority. <laughs> opinion that it was a worthwhile conversation to have and that it was not a ridiculous conversation to have. And I don't and I don't have an answer on this one, incidentally, as to whether the fact that we could have that conversation at all would have if the ballots had come in a month later would have lowered Breaking Bad somewhat. I'm fairly confident it would have raised Better call. Yes. I, so just speaking personally, I'm fairly sure it would have been raised by five or ten positions on my ballot. So this is just me thinking in terms of timing on things. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was also interesting to see as the
0: ballots came in. We told the people who, from the the business side of things, you feel free to vote for shows you were on. And some people did that. Some people voted very, very highly for the shows they were on or the shows they created. And some people said, like, I'm not going to, like, put anything I worked on on this list because it just seems in bad
2: form. Hmm. Do you think that, uh, do you think that, would have impacted anything. I'm trying to think of where that would have impacted anything in terms of actual placement, or not at all, really.
0: Not so much placement. I will say, without naming names, there's a couple of shows that I think are on the list, largely because the people who worked on them put them very very high and thus as a result (laughs) the the weight of their points were there and i mean that's that's the thing is you want people who are currently working in the business because you don't want like the list necessarily being curated by retirees who do not like have their finger on the pulse of what's happening but then you have people who are on it's like okay i want to i want to stand for my thing
1: did just a quick question did you have executives do this too
0: We did not have executives this time. I don't know if that's something we would consider if we do this again in in another six years. Although uh, I think I would need to get a flak jacket if we're going to do it again
2: next time.
1: Well, Dan, let's hear your picks. Do you want? Do you feel comfortable sharing maybe your top five? I can I can share
2: mine and and sort of use it as a transition to some of my quibbles with things. Uh, I'll I'll go with my top ten. I had uh, Sesame Street at number ten on my ballot. I had Cheers at number nine. I had Breaking Bad at number eight. I had The Sopranos at number seven. I had Mad Men at number six. I had I Love Lucy at number five. I had the UK Up Series, the documentary series, at number four, and the fact that I had it as high as I did, and it did not make the top hundred, suggests that no one else had it on their list, and I do want to talk about that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had The Twilight Zone at number three, that also seemed wildly underrated to me. I would say that uh, Twilight Zone, I Love Lucy, were two kind of big examples of shows that got fucked by recency bias, and... The world needs to have a little conversation about that. I had The Simpsons at number two and I had The Wire at number one. So uh, you know, I, I think my list was reasonably well represented within the top hundred, but again, the op series was absent. I on Twitter I mentioned also that I had the prisoner in my top 20. It was at number 13, it didn't make the top hundred, and I had the singing detective at number 21. I had thought I'd had it in the top 20, and it didn't make it either. Um I, I do want to ask. Your opinion, Alan, on a couple of the sort of ways that the list is clearly skewed. And if there's anything anyone can do, Uh, like let's let's start first with the international thing of it all. I understand that, that you just get more traffic if you say the best TV, 100 TV shows of all time and you don't put any qualifiers on it. Should yeah. you guys have called this the best hundred, the, the hundred best American TV shows of all time and just eliminated anybody who voted for a foreign thing?
0: I mean, we could have, that's what Matt and I did with the book is we just said like, well, we know a lot of great foreign TV show. We don't know everything. And I know in the past, like when I've spotlighted certain British series, I will hear from English fans saying, look, those are good. Like these are actually the most revered shows in England. And several of them I had never even heard of before. Um, so that's tricky, but I think TV is is much more international now than it's been. I wouldn't want to just close the door on that. I think the results we got were maybe not ideal. It was look almost entirely American shows, a couple of Canadian shows, you know, a handful of British shows and Squid Game. And Squid Game definitely benefited from Recency Bias. That's the newest show on the list. That kind of snuck in there towards the tail end of things. And when you just consider all of the other potential things that could have been on there from different countries in terms of miniseries, you know, Decalogue, Berlin Alexanderplatz, um, uh, you know, on and on
2: and on. But this, this is what we wound up with. Yeah, the idea of having Squid Game on and not The Prisoner to me is is just comical. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and having and having no Dennis Potter shows on, so to me, both Singing Detective and Pennies from Heaven really should have been there. Um, and, and then... I think I'm. I think I'm probably more bothered by the uh, the lack of unscripted fare of varying kinds. Yeah. Um, and and the question of whether this should have been a 100 best scripted shows of all time. Yes.
0: <laughs> I that's that I think is another issue. I think like. Um, 60 Minutes and Survivor, like, both finished just barely out of the top 100, along with a couple of other things like San Elsewhere and and Homicide. I think, A, we were mostly reaching out to people who worked in scripted, uh, I mean, and those are the people who got back to us. The list from 2016 was almost entirely scripted, I think 60 Minutes and maybe Nightline were on there, um, you know, and, and Survivor, and so like it be, it becomes a self-selecting thing and i think that's something we're going to have to think about if we do this again like bringing some more people into the tent so so other genres can be represented.
2: Yeah, those are those are those are the two big obvious ones to me. 60 minutes needs to be on a list like this and survivor does yeah. as well unless there's just pointless snobbery about uh whatever 60 60 minutes did not make my top i don't think 60 minutes made my top 50 so i'm at least partially to blame for that uh but um survivor definitely did and but then also along the unscripted lines i mentioned the up series and yeah you know leaving leaving that off to me um To me, it's a landmark piece of filmed entertainment. And so the only justifiable reasons to leave it off are either if people haven't seen it, so yes. be it, whatever. Um, or if people don't think it counts, and given that the entire thing was funded by the BBC as a BBC project and has aired on yeah. TV in the UK in each of its installments, subsequently, that is ridiculous. It should be there. Also, I, I'm I'm shocked, given again the recency bias of it all, that uh, OJ Made in America didn't make it. Uh, to to me, that is another thing that that needed to be there. If if I had to. <sighs> If if I had to show aliens what life in America was like in the 1990s, I would yeah. send that to the aliens because I I think that it represents everything about like yeah. five decades of America and and, yeah. and not have it there is weird. But uh, I believe OJ made America was another one
0: that was like around 105 or 106 and then. Uh the first season of American Crime story was one or two spots behind. And I think that may have been one where like you had some people picking one and you had some people picking the other and sort of they they were siphoning votes from one another. I definitely I mean, you're not wrong, Dan. I think that among the things that we could do better next time if we do this next time or that we could have done better this time is when making the list to like send out to people of suggest you don't want to like make too many suggestions because you don't want to feel like you're putting your thumb on the scale. But at the same time, like if you mention some documentaries that will then prompt people to think of other documentaries necessarily. Um, so it's definitely something we we can work on. We could we could have done better and we can do better.
2: It's still look, it you know, to me, you make lists like this to have people disagree with them. That does not mean yes. that those people should be sending hostile, obscenity filled <laughs> emails to Alan, but you make yeah. them to disagree and the 100-show list yeah. is, to me, it's probably a solid 90 really good television shows. And yes. the other 10, I know people just like more than I do. So if people want to put Seinfeld in their top 10, I've had enough years of being <laughs> able to accept the fact that I like Seinfeld less than some people did. I don't get pissed off by its premise All I can, or by its presence. All I can do is not include it in my own ballot, which I did not.
0: I will say, by the way, like, the number of people who specifically are mad that Fleabag finished ahead of Seinfeld has been really impressive and or unnerving. Like, there's just something about the Fleabag placement more than almost anything else that really seems to piss people off. And I can't possibly imagine what it could be that separates this comedy from a number of the other comedies we had in our top ten.
2: Uh, look, there there are two reasons one is people hate women, but the other one is also that it's only two seasons of television and there are only six episodes apiece. And that is the one that I can at least entertain the conversation on the, the, you know, the underlying sexism of it is, is, you know, some people feel that way. Other people, guess what? Don't. Uh, but yeah, no, it's there, but there's always going to be a difficulty of what do you do with the fact that, Sure. Fleabag has 12 episodes, period. And that was a half a season for that was less than a half a season for Cheers and less than a half a season Mm -hmm. for Seinfeld. So this sounds an
1: awful lot like a discussion that we have about the Emmys and broadcast shows and how we used to talk about categories that we should include for shows that do under 10 and shows that do more than 20 or around 20, et cetera. So.
0: What's interesting is when they did the list in 2016 before I was there, the British office, which again did 12 episodes plus the Christmas special, finished higher than the American version. And this time they switched places and were almost exactly in the position the other had been beforehand, if I'm remembering right. So that's a case where at some point people's affection for just the sheer tonnage of the NBC show and how many great episodes there are outweighed the fact that like the batting average of the Gervais Merchant Show was better.
1: Yeah, okay. and and its ability to binge on Netflix, which people obviously. Yeah, I was going to say it's an,
2: it's another one of those quarantine binges. I'm curious. I, I just, you you can just say no, I don't know. Uh, yeah. What change did ER have between the two lists? I'm just I'm just going through my mind and thinking of the things I know people binged extensively <laughs> over the quarantine, and if. There were certain shows that simply rose in people's affection or whatever over. You, you got to give me a minute
0: because I'm I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm happy to look it up uh, right now is 54th and I'm going to get the 2016 list. Sure. Um, but it was it was interesting to me. I didn't even realize it until I started writing the blurbs. ER is the only doctor show. That made the top 100. And this is one of like the most resilient, enduring of all, you know, TV genres. Like House didn't make it. Grey's Anatomy didn't make it. St. Elsewhere, as I said, barely missed. There's just so many. And ER, I love ER. ER is great. ER is the one I would pick if we were going to have one. But it was just
2: surprising to me that it was the only one. With With something like House, that's an example of a show that. If it had just ended after maybe four seasons, people would have been, or if it had aired on HBO, you know, people would have felt more affection and then it kind of kept going and kept going and affection waned a little bit like a Dexter, for example, might have after four seasons been the kind of thing that would have been in someone's top hundred and then it wouldn't have any more. I was a little surprised by... Um, how resilient Arrested Development was and how very clearly its resilience was based on people just deciding to pretend that the Netflix seasons didn't happen, which is a choice. (laughs) I, you know. (laughs) Well, you will note in
0: my blurb on it, I specifically refer to, like, people's love of the Fox seasons. But I... (laughs) I took that as well to mean people had just forgotten that those last two years existed at all.
2: Or, for, or were willingly, willfully ignoring it. So like another yeah. of the complaints I saw from people were things like, how on earth is succession so high? It's been three seasons, but it could go off the cliff at any time. How on earth is Atlanta so high? It has yeah. one more season left. It could go off a cliff. But a lot of voting in this... There's some measure of pretend, of of willful pretending that the part of the show that I loved was significant enough that I can pretend that the part I didn't love didn't exist. I mean, my I have uh, Arrested Development number forty nine on my list, and even that yeah. I felt was was generous because, again, those last two seasons they exist. You you can't pretend they don't. So yeah but whatever.
0: (laughs) I think it's, I mean, I think that gets back to the office thing where again, there's a lot of bad episodes of the American office. And most of the final two seasons are pretty dreadful. And yet all that you like with, as the years pass, what you're thinking about is you're thinking about Michael cooking his foot on the foreman grill and Dwight doing the fire drill and Jim and Pam, like kissing at the end of casino night and all of the really great stuff. And then the other things kind of filter away in the haze of memory and nostalgia.
2: And, That's just how, that's how a list like this is always going to go. And that's, I guess, where the fun of it is. And, and when you decide that a show has accumulated enough volume that it's worthy of a position as high as, as Succession was. Because, you know, I'm as, yeah. I'm as big a Succession cheerleader as there is. It has had three seasons, and all three seasons have been in my top three for my respective years. And yet on my list, it's number 31. I just couldn't put it higher than that yeah. as long as it's a thing in progress. So, Uh, and I did
0: not have it on my list at all, because even though I've come around on it and really like it, there were just other things I wanted to vote for more. And I suspected correctly, as it turned out, that it was going to have a lot of support elsewhere. And I looked it up. ER was
2: exactly fiftieth last time, so it slipped four spots. Slipped four spots. Okay, so that that at least somewhat does away with my theory that the the largest of the quarantine binges benefited, because I definitely felt like yeah. ER was one of those major everybody binge seventeen seasons of <laughs> ER over over the pandemic. So I don't know. It's look again. It's it's all about. all about fun chatter (laughs) and to and to me
0: again as someone who was one voter out of 50 something uh i looked at it as a chance to write about these shows again and some of as i said some of that was hard some of it was not and some of these shows i had never written about either before at all or in this kind of format and it was just fun like there's been there's a lot of just great great tv on that list And I liked getting to revisit it and getting to talk about like why these shows are great and why so many people might have voted for them, whether or not you agree or disagree that this show should be above that show or on the list at all.
1: Yeah, and I do want to. Before we wrap the segment, I do want to talk about the network showing because yeah. NBC. I mean, obviously, they've been around a long time. Yes, was the clear leader here. But uh, how, what surprised you about how the about the network rankings and in terms of the shows? Um,
0: I, I to be honest, this is you saying this is the first I've thought of it. Um, obviously, NBC did a lot because they're run from like you know 1981 when Hill Street Blues came on till whenever. Um in the mid 2000s when ER and friends were wrapping up, they just had so many shows and we easily could have had like Will and Grace or scrubs or several others on there. Um, so that's, I mean, that's definitely good. And it was nice to see that like the, whatever recency bias was infecting the list, it was not so overwhelming that the list is just entirely shows from the 21st century from cable and streaming services. Um, so that was definitely good, and we still had a lot on there. And I got to say, by the way, just having browsed through the old list looking for Yar, ER, um, there were some things that I was disappointed didn't make it again, like The Fugitive, The Ed Sullivan Show would have been cool to have on. But I also noticed we had real time with Bill Maher somewhere in the like <laughs> bottom half of the 2016 list. Oh lord!
1: <laughs> well, let's wrap up with with a with a good one here. Um, if you could pick one show that didn't make the list to make it onto whatever future list that you do, what's that one for both of you guys?
0: Um, I mean, I, I think Dan has made a very good argument for for the Michael Aptad Up series. And I do think that, like, if it's if this list is lacking something, it's unscripted. Like, it, hom- cop shows are well represented. I love Homicide. Homicide does not necessarily need to be on there. Saying Elsewhere, I love, but I don't know that I love it more than a lot of other dramas on there. So let's go with
1: Up. So where can you stream that, Dan?
2: At this moment, I'm not sure you can. I think last last I remember, a lot of it was on BritBox, but not all. And I'm sure that is part of the problem. On the other hand, every seven years, or at least every seven years, I have no idea what the plans are now after Michael Aptet's passing. But every seven years, it got a new boost of, uh, of promotion and people remembering what a great thing it is. And even if the last one, which was only a year or two ago, or a year or three ago, even if it's the last one, the overall achievement of the series is to me so titanic that it belongs here even if it's done and it probably would have belonged here even if it had been done after 42 or 49 so yeah it's it's some great stuff
1: and you can find the full list and send alan all of your love letters about it over on rollingstone.com
0: number four
1: Up next, before we say goodbye to Alan, we're going to go from Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest TV shows ever to a larger discussion about season two of the FX comedy Reservation Dogs, which may finish 2022 as the year's number one show among critics. So the, the spoiler alert, the season finale did drop this week on Hulu. So if you haven't watched yet, proceed with caution. Dan, Alan, we're obviously entering October, yet the final stretch of the year. Still a lot of great TV coming But let's start here. Is this really, is this going to be your number one show of the year as it stands right now?
0: Uh, It would take a really titanic achievement for anything to displace it at this point, because that's just one of the best seasons of television I've seen in quite some time.
2: Yeah, as of now, it's my number one. Uh, But again, there are a few more months. There are things I'm looking forward to. Anything could happen. uh, But. But yes, it, I mean, look, I, I compared it on, on Twitter a couple weeks ago after, I guess, the eighth episode to like watching a, a pitcher throwing a perfect game is that you're you're just like okay well at some point there's got to be a bad episode at some point there's got to be an episode where just nothing happens and and it isn't emotional it isn't funny it isn't it isn't absurdist it isn't surreal it isn't hitting on all cylinders there's bound to be an episode that falls flat and uh there there was not i mean the thing i would compare it to is uh god is it the third season of parks and rec with with flu season Um, yes.
0: Yeah. There, there's a period from like late in season two around like when Adam Scott and Rob Lowe joined the cast to like at least halfway through season three, where it's like, there was not, not only not a bad episode, there was not like a B plus episode. They were all A's at that point.
2: Yeah, that was, that was what I was thinking through this season. And again, it goes back again to the network versus cable thing is that would have been 20 plus episodes. This is, this is a 10 episode season. But yeah, this, this is one of those, to me, fairly perfect seasons of, of television. And so, you know, we'll see. There, there are still two more months. So hell, if something, yeah, if something wants to come in the next two months that's better than Reservation sure. Dogs, God bless, yes. bring it on,
0: <laughs> please. Yeah, imagine a top three where it's like neither Reservation Dogs nor Better Call Saul is the number one show. That will have been one hell of a year in television. Absolutely,
2: bring it on. So let's hope. <laughs> where, where do you want us to go next, Leslie?
1: wherever you guys want to go I'm behind and so I'm gonna get spoiled here anyway but I've been watching too much baseball because you know dogs okay <laughs> so, so Dan
0: let me ask I will pl- I will play the role of Leslie here and I will ask you um one of the great things about the show is it can do so many flavors you can do an episode uh, like the one the one about big you know uh, might dosing up on hallucinogenics and winding up in the woods And then the next week you can do that episode where Willie Jack goes to visit Daniel's mother in prison and she has the vision of all the elders behind her. Like, do you prefer funny
2: reservation dogs or do you prefer sad reservation dogs? I love that it can do both. And I, you know, I told you, when when the big does drugs and hallucinates for half hour episodes, and that was uh, this is where the plot thickens when that episode aired, that it was my least favorite episode of the season. And, and it was that was my least favorite episode of the season. And that is a great episode of television. I I have <laughs> I and like on its own. I have no problems with that episode at all. It is a great showcase for Zon McLaren who was not used enough this season largely because he was doing his own show, presumably on AMC. I assume he was simply busy. And if and if his yeah. being busy is the price of doing business and, and of elevating the profiles of all of these people on the show excellent for for him but yeah that was that was my least favorite episode of the season and it was a fantastic episode so let's say that i don't like the show as much in its uh more surreal vein but i don't think that's that's true um yeah i like i it would be hard for me to choose my favorite episode of the season really was Mabel, which was the, the memorial episode that was built around, uh, Debra Jacobs, Laura Dannon character and, and her losing her grandmother and everybody coming together and reflecting, On that. But when I say that that was my favorite episode of the season, I I think the episode with cheese at the at the group home with Mark Marin, maybe that was my favorite episode of the season because that was just an amazing episode of TV. And I think that we could sort of go down the cast and talk about just all of these stars and and how bleeping good they are. Like how great Lane Factor is as cheese. How great paulina alexis is as willie jack and now that we know that her full name is wilhelmina jacqueline i find that both logical and, <laughs> and very sweet how great defry jacobs has always been and just how great every individual piece of the supporting cast beyond those four is yeah. slash r so okay get the same question back to you is there a mode in which you prefer that reservation dogs is acting
0: um. Wh- wh- how's the meme go? Why not both? Uh, what I like, and I think Mabel might be my favorite episode of the season, and it's because it has sort of both of those modes, so you can have the spirit of William Knifeman kind of wandering around outside the memorial, like, just wanting food and being an idiot, and then moments later, you can have sort of this beautiful, you know, ghostly visitation of the spirit of Mabel to um to Alora Dannon, and it can have those within, like, beats of each other, in the same sort of territory in terms of theme and content. And yet they, the one flows sort of beautifully into the other. I I really like how versatile and how sure of itself this show is. And I believe I spoke to, to Sterling Harjo before this season, and if he did not exactly say that they didn't have much use of Zon this season, I think he sort of implied it. And he said, like, we will get good use out of him before you see the rest of the episodes. And they did. Like, if you really only have him for one or two, that's the way you gotta use them.
2: Also, this is there's just nothing you can do if you have a 10-episode season and they're half-hour episodes and you've got the cast that they've got. I so sure, I would love more Zon McLaren in absolutely any time possible. I would love more um that you know, they had West Studi, I think, for an episode, maybe two episodes. I would love more of him. I would love more Gary Farmer. Um yep. if someone wanted to give me a uh uh, Miko and Mo's centric episode, you know, where is that episode and why has that episode not happened? Probably because there are too many options. There was the episode where we just went off to the convention with the aunties. That was a tremendous episode that connected emotionally with everything in the season, but it didn't connect directly with the four main characters that we wanted, but didn't bother yeah. me at all. <laughs> Yeah, no,
0: it's it's really great, and one of the things that struck me about the finale, and we'll we'll tr- let's tread a little bit lightly for Leslie's sake, is one of the things that they do in the finale is it fi- nothing on FX these days, or FX on Hulu or on Hulu or whatever the bleep we're calling it these days, seems to ever be in danger of an abrupt cancellation anymore. They they tend to curate things better than that, and they give people excuse ample me, warning. where is
2: my season two of Taboo, Alan? Where is my season two of Taboo? Was, was that the Tom Hardy thing? <laughs> it was indeed the Tom Hardy thing. That was definitely at some point renewed for a second season, but will we ever see it? I have no idea. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Sorry, I, I just wanted to okay. mention that, that was a TV show that existed. Yes. <laughs> all right. So one of the things that you would see a lot
0: back in the days when, you know, all we were watching was broadcast TV is you would have shows that were kind of, they knew they were on the bubble and they would do a finale that sort of could double as the end of a show in case they didn't get renewed. You know, Chuck did like seven of those over the course of five seasons. And I watched the the season two finale of Reservation Dogs, which is so beautiful and so funny and so weird. And so all of the things the show can do. And then I got to the end of it and I thought, man, like, I wanna see more of this because this is an incredible show, but if they
2: never made any more, this would be a perfect conclusion to the story. And absolutely, if they had decided that season two was the end and that uh, Sterling Harjo wanted to do other things, then I would absolutely uh, be able to vote for Reservation Dogs for the next Rolling Stone uh, Top 100 TV Shows of All Time list, because otherwise two seasons feels like very little. But on the other hand, it seems like a thing that could be plausibly argued uh, if one. Yeah, if I'd I'd seen this whole season, I think I might have snuck it on somewhere in my 50. I I think probably I would have as well. But no, you're, you're absolutely right that there's no question that if this was where the show decided to end, this would have been absolutely and completely a full circle uh, exploration of the story that was introduced in the pilot, that was carried through, that was the ongoing conversation point through the entire second season. A lot of people I've seen on Twitter, the, the basically the only reservation I've seen from people, ha <laughs> reservation. Uh, sorry. Damn. Not, it wasn't intentional. It just came out. It, it doesn't mean that I can't use the word. Um, the only but, hesitancy that people had... There we are. The complaint that people had that I can understand is that they wanted to see the reservation dogs. They wanted to see these four main characters spending more time together and that the entire season was often about splitting them up. And first of all, the first season did that. Also, if you go back to the first season, there are episodes that are focused exclusively on cheese, exclusively on Willie Jack. That's that's what the show always did. But but when you watch the finale, the finale is built so entirely around, Okay, here are these characters who have barely been together all season, who have only been together with various strains and stresses when they've been together this season. Here they are, and they're working through things without necessarily having the let's all sit down and have a discussion about what we're working through. But they still did that somewhat. I I think you needed having them separate to make the finale work as well as it did. I think there's no question that they knew what they were arcing towards.
0: Yes. And also I think if assuming that this was done with knowledge that there would be more seasons and it's since been renewed, like this is something you can do if you know, you're going to do more of it Um, because I I do feel like it's a thing sometimes in young people's lives where a friend group starts to fracture and they, you know, they fall apart and sometimes they mend themselves as happens here and sometimes they don't. And it felt very true to, you know, adolescents of, you know, of any group, not just necessarily
2: indigenous kids living in rural Oklahoma. Um, And I liked it a lot. Yeah and non- and none of it suggested that everything is going to go back to being 100% hunky dory in the in yes. the third season but it allows for the possibility that things could be more hunky dory if that's the direction that they wanted to go but they don't they don't need to again i am perfectly happy to go off and spend a few hours with any of these side yes.
0: characters so and I mean, the only real benefit of the fact that Peacock killed Rutherford Falls is that some of the people who were doing double duty on those shows will now be even more available to this one going forward.
2: But they need more time—ten episodes. I know, not en- not enough.
0: I mean, not yeah, that's definitely the that is definitely the, th- the been the frustrating thing about among the frustrating things about TV in the modern era, and this isn't just about Reservation Dogs. Is there's so many shows where I would really love to see. 13, 15, 18, let alone 22. Uh, And it's just, nobody wants to do that anymore for both creative and financial reasons. And I think a lot of like the best moments on the shows that all three of us grew up watching Came like much later in the seasons, or came in these episodes that were not in service to any kind of ongoing arc. It was just like, let's hang out with these people, or let's try something and see what happens. And obviously, Reservation Dogs is a show that will try something every single week, but I definitely want to spend a lot more time with them than we are able to under the current business model.
1: Yeah, well, at least you get season three, guys. Yep. Well, you can go back and listen to our August 2021 interview with co-creator Sterling Harjo pegged to season one of the comedy that's in episode 132. Obviously, Reservation Dogs has already been renewed for a third season coming probably next year because it sounds like they're going to try and keep this on an annual schedule, which is nice.
2: And Alan, you you plugged the Rolling Stone list extensively and you uh, also plugged your book multiple times. Anything else you want to plug while we got you? Um, like
0: I said, I'm going to have this thing about, uh, with interview with Raphael, Bob Waksberg, which I'm going to do in about 20 minutes from when I leave this. Uh, and that should be up on rollingstone.com tomorrow or today. By the time people are listening to this, I always get confused about what day it is. It's
2: all the time warp. Thank you so much for joining us, Alan. Pleasure. As always guys.
1: Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Lots to choose from this week. Surprise, surprise. I heard there's a lot of TV, Dan. Rami makes its long awaited return for season three on Hulu, obviously one of our favorites. And then we've got another one of your favorites, Dan. The Amber Ruffin Show is back on Peacock. Onyx Collective launches its first scripted original, Reasonable Doubt, which arrives on Hulu. The Mighty Ducks Game Changers returns without Emilio Estevez. And then on broadcast, ABC and CBS have the rookie spin off Feds and the return of one of last season's breakouts, Ghosts, respectively. And then, of course, you're going to read, you've read all the headlines about all the cast changes. Saturday Night Live is back for the start of its 48th season. Obviously, there's no screeners for that. Hi, it's called Live, Saturday Night Live. But, Dan, lots of other things to choose from this week. What you got for us?
2: Indeed. Um, Okay, so Reasonable Doubt has already uh, premiered, I believe, on Hulu. Might as well at least quickly touch on that. Uh, I've watched um, an episode and a half of it, basically. And what I can say is it does feel a lot like a streaming version of Scandal. The the show's creator is a Scandal veteran. And so it is not surprising the pilot was directed by Kerry Washington. Again, not surprising that it would feel like also executive produces the series. Indeed. So no no surprise, it would feel scandal-esque, and that's perfectly fine. Um, it, it stars Emmy Otsi-Corinaldi, who I, I just, I think she's so good, and I've thought that she was so good going back to the Ava DuVernay film, Middle of Nowhere. That's like a decade ago now. And it's very, very simple to know why, uh, you know, Hollywood didn't rush out and put her as a star in a dozen different TV shows and a dozen different movies. It's, uh, you know... Is what it is, um, but she's great. She should have been a star after Middle of Nowhere. She should have been a star after uh, the above-average reboot of, of Roots. She should have been a star after CBS's The Red Line, which uh, was not a great show, but which was a show of some ambition. And and here she's she's great. She is she is just a fierce screen presence. And to me, there's absolutely no reason why a TV show starring her shouldn't be successful it should be a thing people want to watch because she is awesome and it's a it's a great cast around her also people like michael ely etc uh so i actually think i probably will get back to this at some point uh but there was really just too much tv this week uh
1: And again, just as a reminder, if you don't remember what Onyx Collective is, it's the little mini studio that's overseen by Freeform President Tara Duncan that is focused on stories around people of color and underrepresented communities. So this is their first ever scripted series. And of course, all things Onyx will stream on Hulu.
2: Continuing also with Hulu, premiering on Friday is the uh, third season of Rami, which of course has been one of my favorites since it launched God, who even knows anymore back in 2019. And then the second season kept going into early summer 2020. And then the show kind of vanished. And for people who watch the show and if you don't watch the show, I've only mentioned, you know, several dozen times to watch it. I eventually got Leslie to watch it. It took a long time. Uh, But, of course, the second season ended, it it ended in a fairly dark place. Uh, If you'll recall, Rami had done some very, very bad things involving the woman that he married. And basically, you had Mahershala Ali as the sheik, uh, the sheik, rather, telling him that basically he hurts people and that he makes things worse. And it was a pretty damning thing, but probably an appropriate thing. Because one of the things about the character is that He does a lot of things that are bad and does not necessarily stumble into hilarious consequences. He stumbles into consequences that sometimes are funny. And that's kind of the difference between something like uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where Larry David's character, of course, does all sorts of bad things, and there are really never any consequences whatsoever because he has that Seinfeld money and Rami does not. But I think that probably the third season could have just picked up a couple years later in whatever position they wanted to, and maybe they could have filled in the gaps and said, okay, there was some dark stuff, we've kind of moved on, but that's not what Rami Yusuf, the show's creator, and at this point, very, very frequent director and writer or co-writer of, I think, every episode of the season. I don't think it's what they wanted to do. And so the season is, it's, it's a pretty dark season. It's a pretty bleak season because everybody is dealing with various forms of of misery stemming from the awful thing that Rami did at the end of the second season, but then also just the difficult ripples coming out of COVID and coming out of the pandemic. So there are economic difficulties everywhere and Rami is struggling with his faith. And at the, you know, when the season begins, he's basically lost his faith. And that was one of the central things about that character. And so without those things, what is driving him? And that's kind of the question of the season. I am two thirds of the way through the season. I'm, I'm plugging away, uh just too much TV, also Jewish holidays, all that stuff. Anyway, uh the the episodes I've seen are are great and and in some cases spectacular. Uh, the show continues to deal with prickly topics with a good degree of sensitivity, sensibility, and often it is extremely funny. It is sometimes a show that is a, you know, a half-hour comedy, but you know, No One's Making Jokes, the sort of show that uh, that they made fun of on Reboot as being a, a show that's, you know, best comedy you've ever seen, you won't laugh once. Uh, sometimes Rami is like that, but I would say I laughed a lot at these episodes. Um, I, I think that it's, I think it's very funny when it wants to be, and, and a lot of the funny comes from fish-out-of-water stuff involving Rami and the confusion of the fact that he shaved his beard off this season. It's a, a very, very distractive thing, distracting thing. But there are uh, definitely there are lots of episodes that deal with his family and a lot of episodes that are very standalone-y where Rami has no actual on-screen presence at all. But in general cases, he, as I said, either directed or wrote or co-wrote the episode. So he's involved on every level. But so there, there are great episodes for uh, for Hi, I'm a Boss. Um, there are great episodes for uh, uh, May Kalani, who some people will remember from Moon Knight, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There are lots of there are lots of great showcases for the great cast, and yeah, I'm just I'm happy to have this show back. Uh, not as much uh, Mo Armour for logical reasons, because Mo was of course making his own TV show Mo with Rami as co creator and executive producer. Uh, and that's a show that's on Netflix and that you should watch and that has currently not been renewed. So it should be renewed, um, Netflix, because it's a good show. It's a worthwhile show and etc. cetera. Uh, finally, you have and we talked about this back in headlines. It's already been renewed for a second season. It is Interview with a Vampire. It is, of course, based on the seminal novel by Anne Rice, which was 1976 and then spawned a bunch of sequels and companion novels and of course the Brad Pitt Tom Cruise movie which people have sort of decided is a is a masterpiece which was not the perception of that movie when it premiered and I've seen I've seen this movie that movie like a dozen times I I re-watched it before watching the series it's a movie with a lot of problems. It's it's a movie that, like, for the first 30 minutes, it's basically Brad Pitt wallowing in misery and Tom Cruise doing a funny accent. Uh, then at a certain point, Kirsten Dunst shows up and suddenly the movie goes to another level. It, it, her performance as the, the young vampire Claudia is really what makes that movie go. And anyway, the TV show is... Since the movie was adapted by Anne Rice, it's not a surprise that in many ways it was an extremely, um, extremely direct adaptation. The TV series is much less so. Uh, The series creator is Roland Jones, who podcast listeners will remember was our guest back as one of the co-creators of Perry Mason. Leslie, what episode was that?
1: That would be episode 75 from June 19th, 2020.
2: God, long time ago. Um, They all seem like a long time ago. So it it does a lot of changes to the story, some of which are vaguely cosmetic and some of which are very, very significant. So the the biggest and most obvious change is that the entire storyline was pushed up in history. And so we begin kind of at the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, Louis, the character played by Brad Pitt in the movie, is now played by Jacob Anderson, and he's now of a Creole heritage. And so there's a lot of conversation about what it means to be an outsider in 1910's New Orleans, what it means to be an outsider of color in 1910 New Orleans, what it means to be an outsider of color, and also to be gay but not able to come out and tell people. So there's a lot of subtext that I think is actually very interesting and that simply gets brought to the surface rather than, like, ooh, are they making yearning glances at each other? Um, or, oh, they must be lovers, but it's definitely not a thing that they're going to put on screen or whatever, which is sort of how the movie handles it. Uh, here, it's, it's just straightforward. Uh, Lestat comes into town. He's played by Sam Reed. And uh, things get really swoony in a hurry. And, uh, but then they also get mopey in a hurry. And when things get mopey, as in the book, as in the movie there's the creation of a baby vampire who is not really so well adjusted to uh you know society and becomes feral etc cetera, etc cetera. um i've seen 5 episodes of the new show and i think i like it in general i have reservations all over the place but there are elements of it that i really love i think jacob anderson is great as as louis and i think that uh, that he's giving a a, soul for, a soul for performance that's less wallowing in misery than what Brad Pitt does in the movie. And similarly, I think Sam Reed as Lestat is less kind of artificial Euro and more genuine. He feels a little bit like a character out of Outlander, but also if people wanted to feel as if this interview with the vampire is an Outlander- version of the franchise. I think probably AMC would be perfectly happy with that as a comparison, given what they're trying to do. Uh, As in the movie, there there definitely are lags, and the energy comes in when Claudia, the baby vampire, is born, and Bailey Bass plays the character here, and she's just a lot of fun. They've aged the character up, and the character was already aged up in the movie also, because there's a very, very big difference in how disturbing a five-year-old vampire is versus a 12-year-old vampire. Here, the version of Claudia is closer to, I think, 14, but under certain circumstances she can pass as a grown-up, which, again, eliminates a lot of the things that are icky about the character, but some of the things that are icky about the character are actually entirely intentional and are supposed to be disturbing and icky. Uh, But they, they do some interesting things with her. Also they do some really, really funny things with her. And that's a very important thing, is that after the wallowing in the initial episodes, uh the show does find a sense of humor, and it finds a sense of humor that's sometimes straightforward and will make you laugh. Other times it's it's more in the campy vein. And some of the violence is is in the campy territory. I think probably Obviously, the True Blood franchise wouldn't have existed without Anne Rice and without Interview with the Vampire. And I think that probably there are a lot of kind of backward influences here. I think that probably a lot of the violence here was influenced by what True Blood did. Similarly, I think a lot of the treatment of Claudia was influenced by uh, Let the Right One In and kind of how that handled being an eternally youthful vampire who will always look like a child, but will always feel on the inside like a mature, vicious adult and, and what the conflicts are in that. So, which I, which doesn't bother me if, you know, if, if interview with vampire obviously influenced an entire genre, there's no reason why a later adaptation of it shouldn't be influenced by some of the things that were influenced by the original. So anyway, circular, uh, I think that there's some clumsiness in in finding the tone and some clumsiness in the way that things are paced. It's obviously very very deliberate. There's no rushing ahead, and I don't know how many seasons they really plan for this to have, but it, it's still going along well. And I, so I think it. Ha- I think this one really does have potential. I think that people who are devoted strict fans the book will have problems with it because many many things are changed you know the the book the interviewer from from the title uh who was played by christian slater replacing river phoenix in the movie it he's described he's named just as the boy it's a it's a young person and his youth is central here he's played by eric bogosian and eric bogosian is nobody's idea of a boy these days so what you have is a much older reporter who is facing his own mortality and i think that again it's a choice and it's a choice that the show deals with and i think that what i found most admirable really about the series is There are many adapting choices that are made throughout, and in almost every case, you can see the reasons why they made the choices they did. And sometimes when choices are made in literary adaptations, you go, okay, well, that was haphazard, or okay, but you didn't think of the consequences of this. I get the feeling they have thought of the consequences of the choices that they've made, and I, I respect that a lot it also uh, directed by alan taylor for the first couple episodes uh, it is a really good looking show the representation of of new orleans again early 20th century very very handsome costumes are fantastic special effects are they range from decent to kind of a little campy and cheesy but probably somewhat intentional in that respect so yeah i i I enjoyed enough of this that I will definitely keep watching it. It is not a product that to me arrives on TV fully formed and fully assured of itself, but it continues through five episodes to have a a lot of potential and to be kind of worth checking out. Uh, So as the quick little background uh, or recap reasonable doubts on on hulu uh i really love star emmy atzi corinaldi i think the show feels very very scandalesque so if you've been missing scandal i can see how that would be a thing that you would want to check out uh rami premieres friday on hulu for its third season and it continues to be great uh there's an off chance that at this moment it's the best show on tv with reservation dogs gone so worth checking out. And then Sunday is the premiere of Interview with the Vampire, which I have reservations about, but also think there are a lot of elements about it that really work. So it could mature into something terrific, maybe. So yeah,
1: lots of TV. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's newsletter, Now See This, and bookmark thr.com slash tv dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
2: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of the mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter. Come say hi, let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. If, however, you have questions for future mailbag segments, as ever, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan.